podcasting from New York City Times Square. This is ABS in Mind, where we dissect the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. And I'm your host, Diana Asatran, fintech and consumer debt reporter here at Deadwire. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining. This is ABS in Mind, and I'm your host, Diana Asatran. This is our first episode of the year, so we decided to touch on one of the largest sectors that will follow, commercial real estate. There was no lack of CRE headlines in 2019, from all the retail bankruptcies to the WeWork fallout. So what's in store for 2020? Our CMBS team is here today to help us navigate. Um, first, we have Maura Sadovi, assistant editor and CMBS reporter with Deadwire ABS. Maura, what's on your mind? I wanted to um, invite uh, Rick Jones, co-chair of Deckert's global finance business, to chat about his outlook for 2020. Um, He's fresh from the CRE Finance Council conference in Miami, which uh, sort of is the unofficial start of the new year for the the sector. Um, So um, I'm delighted he could join us. Great. Thanks, Maureen. Thanks, Rick, for joining. Next, Thank you. I'm looking forward to chatting. Next, we have Gwelda Wen, who also covers CMBS for Deathwire um, ABS. Gwelda, what's top of mind for you? Similarly, just looking at really projections for 2020, it looks like we're going to see even stronger issuance again. At this point, analysts seem almost confused by our good fortune in this industry. So we're trying hard to locate a couple sectors where they're, you know, might be brewing distress and signs of, you know, little bit too much froth, but uh, it's been hard. (laughs) All right. uh, Well, let's get started uh, with uh, you, Maura. Well, Rick, um, uh, looks like we're, as as Gwilda said, uh, we're in another year where the long and the tooth uh, bull cycle and and strong commercial real estate estate market are defying expectations. Uh, Why do you think we're in for another strong commercial real estate market uh, rather than a correction, if that is indeed what you think? Yeah, thank you. Uh, and and I do think we're going to have a, a, a pretty good year. I mean, uh, on on Jack Cohen's uh, Industries Leaders Roundtable, I, I jokingly said the only thing that's special about this year is that we're one year closer to whatever bad will eventually happen. Um, <laughs> But but I think that you know the the the, the market has broadly you know, sort of conceded defeat on being balanced um, in their view as to risks and reward. I mean we're 10 years, 11 years into this in this recovery, um, and there's lots of noise out there. I'm sure if you I know you follow my crunch credit and uh, I write about this a lot. There's tons of noise. The world is full of black swans and orange swans that uh, create a, a sort of a sense of swirling chaos around uh, the U.S. economy and, and, in fact, the broader world economy at all time. But but it's become sort of background noise. Uh, we've seen so much of this, and we've powered through it. And if you, if you sort of peel away um, the noise and you see an economy that's, that's generating a massive amount of growth, uh, uh, fantastic uh, employment numbers, uh, growing uh, wage growth, you know, productivity is okay, interest rates are low, Commercial real estate is thriving, so it's 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 just hard to um, to to get to a balanced view that risks and rewards are are balanced. It seems like asymmetrically, this the the factors that drive our business this year are suggesting another year of growth. Well, you mentioned orange swans. What's your sense of the presidential elections? Um, you know, potential impact on uh, commercial real estate. I mean, how are I, I did hear some concerns at the conference about. 
rent control? What what happens if Bernie gets in? You know, what what's your sense for for is there a sense of for, foreboding in that area or you know? What about that orange swan? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all know who that is, right? So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's quite a hair color he manages to achieve. <laughs> um, but um, uh, I, I think the, there's a general sense in the, in the sort of on Wall Street that we're looking at another four years of Donald Trump. You know, the election has the capacity to disrupt I frankly think the event that would materially disrupt this year and throw us off our game would be if um, if, the, if the Democrats nominate one of the two super progressives and then subsequently Donald Trump does something so awful as to actually alienate the entire undecided vote in the middle. And I think the market at that point would say, wow, um, you know, Bernie or Elizabeth might become our president. And I think if the market begins to think that, um, we'll have a rapid slowdown the second half of the year. But if it's if it's Donald versus Uncle Joe or even Donald versus Buttigieg, I think the market will say, well, we could deal with, with either. Yeah, we are all ready to deal with uh, with Hillary Clinton four years ago and uh, and well that represented a more likely, more regulatorily intense environment. You know, the market kind of shrugged it off and said, we can deal with that. So uh, um, it's, it's only if there's a realistic risk that a super progressive gets gets the nod that I think the market will freeze up. And most of the market doesn't think that's likely. And, and uh, freeze up, what does that mean for uh, commercial real estate and, uh, you know, CMBS issuance? If it... Oh, I, I think if the market sometime in midsummer or late summer thinks that um, one of the progressive Democrats is going to be the next president, I think uh, lending will slow down enormously hmm. um, and securitization will slow down enormously as everyone tries to reset to understand what the new world will look like. But again, I don't think that's, you know, personally, I think that's an unlikely outcome. Hmm. Um, and that's why I think the year is going to be just fine. It's uh, it's going to be rinse and repeat from 2019. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the consensus view. Certainly was the consensus view at the Krebsy meeting where there was com- complete, complete and utter giving up or committing defeat on this notion that it's balanced and there might be bad news, it might be good news. I think pretty much everyone is embracing a sunny optimism um, hmm. about the market. Interesting. What was surprising to you? Was there anything surprising in terms of what you heard from the lenders and the borrowing community there? I didn't hear anything particularly surprising, and maybe that's surprising by itself. Um, mm-hmm. Usually, there's something, you know, there's something floating around mm-hmm. um, that you know that is likely to affect the, the current year. But the regulatory environment seems um, reasonably amiable. Yeah, there's concern about um, rent control. Um, you know, one of uh, an idea that, that economists across the board on the left and right all generally think is a bad thing. And if rent control were to, you know, to grow, that's going to impact, you know, the, the certainly the multifamily housing space. And, and uh, you know, Mayor de Blasio in New York, bless his liberal heart, is actually talking about extending it to retail, which would, which would be somewhat disastrous. But I don't think the market really thinks that that we're going to see that type of 
that type of regulatory action spread outside the left coast in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's remotely likely that that retail or commercial rent regulation could be implemented in New York City? I don't think it, it's even remotely likely, given the political environment there. And while that sounds, you know, it certainly will fire up the progressive base. I think there's enough there's enough adults in the in the uh, governmental room to to make sure that doesn't happen. But you know. We've been we've been surprised before, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't I don't right. see, I don't see it. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 in one of those tail risks that you know, it's 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 wrong to ignore. But on the other hand, you can't you can't base a, a business plan or a business strategy on trying to assess and discount those sort of tail risks. Mm-hmm. Right. In terms of retail. I mean, that's been sort of an opportunity for distressed investors. What's your sense of what the new retail is, where, where there is disruption, where, where there are opportunities to get, you know, good deals in real estate or, or bonds? Yeah, but look, the, the epicenter of the retail disaster scenario is obviously the, the B-type enclosed malls. Um, and you can talk all day long about repurposing pads where dead, you know, big box retailers were into entertainment centers and whatnot, but but retail is is gonna be challenged. Although I've been doing this a long time and I think every conference I've ever been to over the past 30 years, someone stood up in very sonorous tones announced that he's deeply concerned about the retail marketplace. So I think the uh, uh, announcements of its its death might be slightly premature. so I think we'll see reposition big boxes. Uh, we'll see more, you know, the power centers work just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, these sort of out, indoor, outdoor malls uh, with recreation attached to them seem to be working fine. Inline in major cities like New York, I think is gonna hold up. So um, we'll be watching, you know, we'll be certainly watching the retail sector closely. I don't see it becoming something that could take the market down as it were. Do, do you see any other sectors, say office, like with the WeWork uh, issue, um, becoming uh, uh, as disrupted by, uh, you know, the digital economy as retail has been? Do you see any other real estate being obsolete, possibly? I don't know. Maybe I'm not sufficiently woke to figure that out, but I, I really <laughs> don't. Um, um, you know, maybe maybe if I was a millennial or a sub-millennial, I've, I've lost track of what gen that would be. Uh, maybe I would be... I would be more inclined to see a, a disruption coming. Yeah, I think the office space use per employee has been dropping for a generation. And you know, we had a burst a few years back of hoteling. Everyone broadly loathed it, didn't work that well. And the office, you know, I'm not sure I want to be an office investor in Cincinnati, but I'd be delighted to remain an office investor in New York, even through a period of soft rents, because. You know these these um, these mega cities that are now attracting whole new industries like New York's attracting a tech industry that it never had before. I think are going to continue to thrive. You mentioned hotels. There's a couple. I've heard a couple murmurs around select service hotels. Um, I think the proportion of them in special servicing is almost twice the rate of that of hotels that have CMBS debt. Some analysts have kind of pointed to that as potentially a new retail. Other analysts have said that's sort of natural, that, you know, uh, that segment is a little bit of a, you know, a sensitive segment of the market that 
could show distress that doesn't really have meaning for the market. Did you hear anything about select service hotels in your uh, conference meetings? Not a lot of noise around it. I mean, it's certainly uh, hotels, which which essentially have the shortest um, you know lease term of any commercial asset uh, in the marketplace, are, are always viewed as the canary in the mine on major changes in GDP, and that can get that can get torqued, particularly during a period when we built a lot of hotels, right. um, particularly limited service hotels. And you know, they are risky assets. A bunch of them are going to fail. They're going to reprice and keep operating. It's not like we don't need them. It's just that I think a lot of them might get repriced. But I, I don't see that again as something that's going to, you know, broadly take down, you know, the, the market. I mean, you can make the argument in every sector, maybe except industrial. You could say, you know, is the multifamily sector healthy? You know, will will the GSEs leave enough of it for the private market to actually, you know, uh, finance conventionally to make it a, a material part of our marketplace? Um, but we can't all just do industrial. So uh, I think that um, the major food groups um, will remain pretty healthy. And, and by the way, one, one food group that never got mentioned at the conference, which is near and dear to my heart, um, and I think is quite good, is the SFR, the single family rental space, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is relatively small, but, but growing. And I actually think it's on the right side of sort of the, to the right side of history. Uh, it is, uh, it's not cyclical, uh, but it is a secular change of uh, younger folks thinking that if I rent a house, I want a house, I want a yard, I've got kids, but I don't really want to get stuck owning a house because if the jobs move from New Jersey to Austin, I want to be able to pick up and move and not be stuck because of ownership of this huge house and this huge mortgage. So I, I think the SFR space is going to grow over the next year and the next decade. Um, it will be a, a good place for our industry to, you know, to find transactions, uh, whether you're Corvest and you're a lender to the space, or whether you're an invitation homes or progress residential as a borrowing in the space. I think that business is going to be healthy. Now, in, in your uh, in your legal work, I was just wondering if you might be able to sort of give us some insight into like innovative uh, structures that might be kicking around for the in the nitty-gritty bond, bond level of uh, commercial real estate. Are you seeing anything that, that is coming down the pike or that, that is starting to emerge as, uh, more strongly that has uh, piqued your interest? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. If you divide the, um, the the CRE securitization world into into three parts, like Gaul, we've got we've got the SASB market, we've got the conduit origination market, and we have the CRE CLO market. And I think we're going to see growth in SASB and CRE CLO. And conduit feels flat to me. And the, the conduit market is a place where we haven't seen a lot of uh, significant change recently. The CRE CLO market, which is you know was getting close to 20 billion this year, and I think is going to grow materially uh, in 20 in 2020, has seen you know, some material change. First, the deal size has gotten bigger. Mm-hmm. The CRE CLO five years ago was a was a fringe product with small deals. Now we're regularly seeing deals over a billion. Many more investors are moving into the space. Um, they're attracted, I think, by the alignment of interests between. You know, the investors who like skin in the game and the fact that in the CRE CLO space, most of the issuers have, you know, a lot of skin in the game, you know, 15 to 25 percent of the capital stack. And I think investors like that. 
we're still seeing a movement in the CRE CLO space structurally from static deals to dynamic deals, managed deals. Um, but otherwise, I think there's been pretty good discipline in terms of what goes into these structures and how the rating agencies are approaching them, notwithstanding a little a little uh, dodgy press that uh, uh, that DBRS Morningstar got in the Wall Street Journal the other day. I think there you know, there's actually reasonable discipline in the in the ratings models uh, and structures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know that's a place where I think we will see more innovation. It's a it's a less stable technology. It's still in a rapidly evolving technology. And so that's a place where I think innovation will be will be a, will be apparent. Mm-hmm. Um, in the SASB space, um, you know the volume is just enormous, and um, you know investors like it because they can wrap their arms around one asset. And um, you know we think that we're going to see benefits of both a, a refi mini boom this year, as well as new um, uh, acquisition activity, creating opportunities for new for new loans. So we think that that space is 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 terrific. One of the innovative structures in that space, which again is is a bit of a highly bespoke structure for a particular type of transaction, but we've done a couple of what we call direct issuance transactions, which uh, which allows the the sponsor to avoid having risk retention um, uh, using the model of the uh, broadly syndicated CLO to effectively have the the, the mortgage lender who originates the credit issue the securities directly and thereby avoid the necessity of risk retention. And I think we're going to see more of that. Um, and as the cycle gets gets older, you know, people are getting increasingly innovative. We've got to find value, and value is harder to find. The need for yield is enormous, and, you know, we in the industry who serve the industry will keep trying to figure out new ways to create it. Mm-hmm. Now, what about those bespoke deals? Um, do they get rated? The, the, Which deals, sorry? The, the bespoke, the SASB deals that um, uh, don't have risk retention, do, can they get ratings? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? Um, yeah, there was a lot of conversation at one of the sessions down in South Beach about do the rating agencies actually give credit for risk retention? Mm-hmm. And the answer was to say was muddy at least. Um, yeah. Do they, do they distinguish between horizontal and vertical? And uh, there was some effort to answer that question, but you know the risk retention is just not a modeling factor in the mathematics of the of the ratings model. You know, is it a qualitative factor? Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe that you know they ought to love CRE CLOs even more than conduit because that's the place where we've got real risk retention going on. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Is there and was that when did the, that deal that type of deal emerge without the risk retention? Do you know? Can you point to any that we that the people might take a look at to get a sense for that? Well, they're they're, they're private, so we can't disclose the actual transactions. Um, um, we tried to do a couple prior to the decision of the Circuit Court of the District of Columbia that um, that came out um, in the fall of. 18 is it? I'm starting to lose track. That mm-hmm. that concluded that you know broadly syndicated CREs, broadly syndicated corporate CLOs, were not subject to risk retention because of the absence of a transfer of financial assets to the securitization vehicle. Uh, since that decision's come out, it's been easier to get folks to agree that a direct issuance model works. Um, 
it has other issues in terms of the certainty of execution that that makes it a very much a, a, a specialized product but but i do believe we'll see a considerable growth in that direct issuance model during this year in terms of one of the things you mentioned, I think, in your outlook was that uh, SOFR is, you see that as an issue, a significant issue this year, the transition to um, away from LIBOR. Um, and, and I think you predicted that uh, we'll have a SASB SOFR this year. What would that accomplish, do you think, for the market? And what, what happens if it doesn't emerge? Well, it, let's put it this way: it's, it's um, it, it will emerge sometime soon. We're only 24 months, 23 months away from when um, Mr. Bailey says uh, uh, LIBOR is going away. So that's that's not that far away now. I think, uh, but I do I do believe. I mean, there's more and more SOFR issuance or SONIA issuance in Europe. That's that uh, I think there's big institutions. As soon as they're comfortable, they can hedge positions might say, let's just get this done. Let's not try to let's not try to convert right in the middle of a of a storm as everyone's trying to get it done at the same time. Let's let's take our time and and get and get something done. Let's analyze, you know, the, the sulfur alternatives. Let's make sure our systems work. Because by the way, you know, particularly for larger players, there's a major systems issue. We should switch out of LIBOR into sulfur. That whole thing needs to get rejiggered. And you know, I, I could see it, to me the argument of, of getting it done well. Our hair's not on fire uh, is a pretty good argument. So I, I do expect to see someone get a deal done this year. And maybe I'm talking my book because I want to do one. So I will admit <laughs> that I'd, I'd like to do one. You know, we, we are certainly putting SOFR into the the floating rate documents as the as the alternative rate, and because investors want to see Sonia rates or SOFR rates baked in. It seems a very tiny step from uh, someone saying, you know what, I think we'll just go full-scale SOFR in the underlying loan and the bonds uh, out of the box because I think you know, some of the bankers may at some point conclude that there's investor appetite for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since we're going to have to do it anyway, it's only a question of timing. So this is, this, is like, this is like talking with an economist, right? I'll tell you what or I'll tell you when, but I won't tell you what and when. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'll be uh, exciting to see it. Let us know if you. Uh, if, I will. If that's I will. coming down that'll, the pike. Uh, that, that will deal with great some publicity. And the other thing I, that came out of the conference a little bit, which I find a little troubling, was there's still a lot of people saying, "Oh, let's not worry about it. The the the, the agencies will will show leadership, and we'll all just do that." And that's true, by the way. But it it, it completely it completely ignores the legacy problem. And we all know that we're going to have to transfer from from LIBOR to SOFR in 23 months, and that problem just gets bigger every day as we grow the book of long tenored floating rate paper uh, that we're going to have to transfer. So our, our legacy problem just gets bigger every day, um, and will continue to get bigger every day until someone actually does a SOFR loan. Um, and again, I think we might see a SOFR. SASB this year, but I doubt we'll see a SOFR sort of inline type loan, you know, a $25 million loan secured by a shopping center at Des Moines. <laughs> that loan's not going to have a SOFR front end tag on it, I don't think, during 2020. So, and I think folks underestimate the difficulty of transferring the legacy book to the new, the new underlying index. Uh, 
and I think it's particularly true if if you posit the possibility of a of that recession that we've been waiting for for 10 years now occurring in 2022. You have to change the underlying index rate of a loan using highly heterodox language across thousands of financial assets during a time of financial distress, and that's a recipe for a, a very difficult time, and, and that's what, what I say. So I'm trying to tell our clients to you know, jump on this, get started, understand what the inventory of your assets looks like right now, bucket them into so the good, the bad, and the ugly to figure out you know, which, which one we take on first uh, and begin to do that work and also to ensure that on a going forward basis, there's as, there's as much homogeneity in the transfer mechanics as we possibly can get. And by the way, the homogeneity doesn't have to be right. Yeah. It just has to be homogeneous. Because if I can fix a whole bunch of loans that are wrong in the same way, a whole lot easier than I can fix a whole bunch of loans that are wrong, each in their own infinitely different way. Well, this has been great. I, one last quick question. What, just quickly, what's your dream loan to be the first SOFR deal? Like big giant casino? Uh, like, in a, I don't know, what, what, what would be fun to do as a SOFR? Uh, anything with a uh, multi-billion dollar uh, principal balance. Yeah. How about that? Even industrial? Yeah. That's fun? <laughs> you know, we find fun in very different ways on lawyer types, you know. <laughs> okay. We have an unusual definition of fun here at Deckard. So, uh, <laughs> trust me on that. Okay. Um, all right. All right. Awesome. Thank well, you. This was fun. Thank you all. Nice chatting. Yes, thank you. Thanks so much, Rick. Appreciate it. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye. Take care. Well, before we wrap up, quick question to you. Um, you were at the CRE Finance Council as well, and I know Moore asked this question to Rick. Uh, was there anything surprising to you from what you were talking to your sources? I would say that just as Rick said, um, what I think people find alarming is that there's nothing particularly alarming. Mm -hmm. And uh, the takeaway from that, I think at least with one investor I spoke with, was that there's so much money on the sidelines and it has to go somewhere and it will in 2020. Uh, maybe in 2021, we'll start to see some more issues. Um, but he pointed to about $300 billion in private equity money alone pegged for commercial real estate investment this year, or, or at least at this time. That has resulted essentially in groups that simply want to finance anything they can, any deal that shows up. Um, I wrote a little bit about how the inventory loan market was starting to show some of the cracks in commercial real estate in the condominium market, especially the residential condominium market, which has been highly discussed. But in terms of sometimes what borrowers expect from lenders, we can uh, extrapolate and tell that some projects are gonna have some trouble down the line. I've never seen another market where borrowers got, you know, three different inventory loans before getting permanent finance. So it, it seems like it might signal something to me, but uh, just as Rick said, no real alarm bells at the moment. 
And I saw that um, Nick's comments around the bespoke transactions that are going on in the CMBS sector kind of caught both of your attention. Is that not a common thing to occur, like transactions of that sort in your space? Well, it sounded like another type of somewhat hybrid deal, you know, taking structure from one type of deal that people are really familiar with and applying it in another. And we see that also with uh, private CRE CLOs where they're taking some structure from warehouse lines. Um, All of those deals have been private, essentially, so it's been difficult for us to figure out the mechanics of it. In that instance, it was a smaller pool of loans that were larger, and that's why they couldn't be rated in a public CRE CLO. But just as Rick said, it sounds like there is innovation happening. It can be really hard to put your finger on it. But in a market like this that, as everyone has said, is so long in the tooth, um, there has to be there has to be innovation. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because um, risk retention was, uh, uh, pu- after the financial crisis, they set that up to make sure that people were had to hold on to a piece of the bond so, uh, so that they were eating their own cooking. So right. um, so it's interesting to hear the, uh, that there's a deal, that, that, that there's a different way to get around those regulations. Yeah, it's interesting because I think they're trying to do the same in some of the other asset classes too, like in my sector, the consumer ABS sector, they're doing some of the pass-through transactions. And for now, they are holding a piece as part of the risk retention, but they're not. There is some muggy area in which they're not technically so much required. There is no like regulation specifically requiring them to hold it. So they're trying to kind of resolve that. That would be a little more um, beneficial to the issuers and lenders rather than yeah well thank you so much Gwelda Mora and uh, Rick and our producer Anthony for putting this together and thank you everyone for uh, tuning in we'll see you all next time thank you thank you you, guys thanks for listening to ABS in mind If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon.